G'day, thanks for downloading the show. Osha here. We do uh, run quite the show here at Better Than Yesterday. There's a few people that work on the show and I need to pay them because they're awesome at what they do. So you might hear an ad here. If you do, thanks. You're helping me keep the lights on. If you don't, you're going to hear Saul Griffith say something that's going to make you go, ooh. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. If we just thought about what can we do today and what is about five to 10 years away from working really well for us, then Australia looks like it comes out beautifully in solving climate change. Basically, right away, we can decarbonize our residential domestic economies, homes, small businesses. We electrify the vehicles, we electrify the homes, electrify the heating, electrify the water heat, electrify the kitchen, solar cells on the roof, bunch of batteries to back it up, sell that technology to the world. All of a sudden, you're in 2030, you've reduced our emissions by 40 or 50%, and then we will have the clean steel and the clean aluminum turned on and we'll be able to basically make wind turbines for the rest of the world to help them on their decarbonisation journey and we'll make a fucking shit ton of money doing it. But that, what was it, like a 35-second run-on sentence? We've never had a politician that could actually stand up and say that without mumbling. That is author, inventor, and co-founder and chief scientist of Other Lab, Saul Griffith. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Usher Ginsberg. Thanks so much for being here. This is a tri-weekly podcast that three times a week hopes to help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on the show. It's going to help you go, oh, you know what? Today, yeah, that's good. Interesting. Yeah, today. Yeah, today was good. Today was, in fact, better than it was yesterday. That's it. Shows go all the way back to 2013. Heaps of episodes to choose from. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Wednesdays, uh, I'm here with a guest that is just a version of something I've done before. Just a kind of little quick snack of uh, one of the previous shows in the back catalogue. And Fridays, I'm here with you. Thank you for the uh, lovely feedback. Uh, you can always find me on email, send Osher email at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, Osher underscore Ginsburg. Thank you very much as well for the ratings and the reviews, wherever you can rate and review the show. That's really, really cool. And if the show does bring you some value, please tell someone. That's the way you can support me. I really, really, really Really appreciate it. Let me tell you about my guest today. Saul Griffith is an absolute powerhouse. We're a little, we're around the same age. He graduated uh, the University of Sydney in 2000 with a Master's of Engineering, and he won a scholarship to the MIT Media Lab, where he completed his PhD in 2004, and his PhD thesis was just about self-replicating machines. They were one of the first instances of artificial replication being demonstrated using real physics. He's an extraordinarily smart fellow. He did a very famous TED talk where he calculated his carbon footprint. He's, a, as you'll hear, been an activist uh, in the environmental space for a very, very long time. He's got a background of just solid science. And I guess when you can see the numbers and read the numbers and see the matrix, you go, oh, fuck me, we're going to have to do something different here. And he's not afraid to get arrested for it, which he talks about in the show, which is really interesting. His TED talk went absolutely bananas. He's a very, very clever man. And once he kind of got himself kind of known and started talking a bit more about 
what he's trying to put together. He founded, he was one of the co-founders of something called Other Lab, which has raised over $100 million in capital from investors and just spun out so many, over over a dozen companies that are all trying to make the world a better place. He's an extraordinary human being. He's recently written a book called Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future. It is an entirely feasible plan for fighting climate change and creating new jobs and an environment we can live in, uh, just using two simple words, electrify everything. I mean, we all heard our Prime Minister the other day talk about yet-to-be-invented technologies, and you'll hear Saul talk about this, but why the fuck wait? Everything we need is already here. Pull the trigger, let's go. We're on. In the book, uh, Saul lays out quite a detailed blueprint. Uh, It's optimistic, but it's certainly doable for fighting climate change and creating millions of jobs and a healthier environment for all of us. And... um, it's really simple. He's a, a fascinating guy. I, I just loved to speak with him. He's a very powerful man. And um, look, he doesn't pull any punches here. There's some stuff you're going to hear which is kind of confronting, particularly the, let's be honest, bullshit we've been sold about carbon capture, which is uh, at, at the climate conference happening right now in Glasgow, COP26, there's a, a stand. The Australia stand is is sponsored by a massive... Um, <laughs> um, fossil fuel company going on about carbon capture and that it's going to still be okay to burn natural gas because we can capture the carbon from it. And you just wait till you hear what Saul has to say about that because it's pretty sobering and really interesting and you got to hear it, man. So I'm really grateful you can be a part of it. You can find him on Twitter, Griffith Saul, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H Saul. You can also find out about everything he's on about saulgriffith.com. He's a fascinating guy. He's a great Australian, and I'm stoked to get him on the show. Enjoy. Hey, man, I appreciate you staying up late to talk to me today. I'm guessing it's late at night where you are. I'm going to guess you're in San Francisco. I'm in San Francisco. What has your day been like so far, Saul? We had some significant victories behind the scenes in the ridiculous American negotiation of the infrastructure bill today. Then I'm happy to hear that. I'm, ha- I'm glad that someone's pushing the needle along because I don't know how much politics you're following back home in Australia, but goodness gracious me, Saul, there is some obfuscation that could get, you know, uh, the eight o'clock show at the Rio in the Penn and Teller Theatre. There's really some fucking magic tricks getting pulled here as far as 2050 bills go. It's all happening. I, but I think that's, I don't know. It's easy to hyperventilate about this and it's easy to criticize, but I think this is, was how it was always going to go. Yeah. And I don't know. I've been there for the other 25 cops and they're always non-events and the commitments mean shit anyway. And they've already done a whole bunch of creative counting and cheating because Australia and America and a couple other governments asked them to. And so is this really the moment that's the transformative moment? We have convinced ourselves it is. Maybe it is, but statistically it's not, and we're just making the the same mistake for the 26th time. Are you going? No. Is that why you're not going? It's over before it began. Yeah. Yeah, mostly. It's about what countries can get done by themselves back home and then, the, then how they're going to tell the lie that that's better than it actually is to when they go and speak to the other countries there. And then they'll all congratulate each other by cheating on the accounting and saying, look, we've solved the problem, Greta, it's okay. And then she's going to say, no, it's fucking not. And she'll be right. But they'll say, but we're adults. You say Greta, but I, I get what you mean by when you're saying Greta. You're saying that anyone with more than a grade three education that can understand simple mathematics and things get hot, take a while to cool down. Uh, <laughs> we'll say it's not okay. Yeah, among among that. Also that, you know, we cooked the book, the accounting books in the last 25 cops so that there's so much negative emissions built in that's impossible to achieve to get to one and a half degrees that they can say we're on target because they've cheated the accounting methods. Hearing you say that, part of my body just descends into horror. And it just means that we're 10 years behind where you think we are because we've the IPCC at the bequest of countries who would like to pretend that we can keep burning fossil fuels for a lot longer 
in the two best case scenarios, the one and a half and the 1.9 degrees scenarios, have modeled in more than 10 gigatons of negative emissions by about 2050, and then continuing that and accelerating that through to 2100 and beyond. Just to put that in perspective, that is building an industry that's larger than the coal, natural gas, and oil industry all combined and pushing just as much shit into the ground every year as they currently pull out of the ground and doing that in a 30-year period. That's not going to happen. So we've lied to ourselves. So this is, I guess, when I ask you, how do you then call your book an optimist's playbook? Because right now I'm feeling pretty grim, Saul Griffith. (laughs) Uh, okay. Well, I'm not in America, so I can be a little more honest than you. In America, you've always got to put lipstick on the pig. I argued with my editor about the subtitle. She said, optimist. I said, I don't think that's how this reads. I think this says, you know, it's still possible. Anyway, I think she was right. And optimist is a good title for a book about climate right now, because people want to know that we could in fact do it. And I do, in fact, have optimism. I don't have a huge amount of optimism about the process in Glasgow, obviously, but I do have optimism that the green shoots of change have planted themselves in a whole bunch of countries and there's a bunch of reasons to think we might go a hell of a lot faster than the governments commit. You seem like the kind of person that can assess a situation very quickly and then go, okay, well, that's not going to work. Here's the course of action. And then that's kind of done and dusted, that there's like a a switch that flicks within you. I hear you talk about what you just talked about, and uh, Saul, I'm not going to lie, my my chest is tight, my throat's constricted, I feel like I'm going to puke a little bit when I think about how scary it is of what you've just described. How do you deal with the colossal realities of the challenge we face? The narrative around climate solutions was always that we were going to, with foresight serenely glide in with a linear response in a perfect landing. And that is how they build the models of the IPCC and everything else. And the model, in intellectual model for how we solve these problems is that humans are do things effectively and efficiently. But the reality is we always do things with huge non-linearities, like everything is great and then it all of a sudden really isn't. And we're not terribly efficient in the way we solve problems and do things. And I think the reality is we're going to have very nonlinear, there's a bunch of very nonlinear things coming up in the energy debate. Like as soon as the price of driving an electric car and buying one is cheaper than a gasoline one, then you can throw all of those straight lines away and you'll have a very, very quick response. And, you know, I think there are more reactions to things like the bushfires and the storms that are becoming non-linear reactions that speed up the reaction much, much faster. The price of rooftop solar in Australia, very slow uptake through maybe 2015, and then magically it started beating the price of the grid everywhere. And now Australia has 50% penetration of solar in some places and I think 25 to 30 across the country, which is extraordinary. It's like, and that happened in, you know, half a dozen years. So we're hitting a bunch of these price points and market situations where you can really see things changing quickly. And in the same sense, you know, it it took the Tesla coming along to open people's eyes that it was possible to have an electric vehicle that didn't suck. It was actually kind of fun. We're only one or two years away from a whole suburb somewhere in the world. Probably it will be in Australia because we are blessed with the best conditions for it where that whole suburb goes all electric and shows that the economics works and the grid didn't actually crash and the hyperventilating of Australian energy market operator was in fact just hyperventilating and we can balance the voltages and it will be more resilient and more stable. And then once you've shown that it works one place in the world, everyone else's, what do they call that event horizon or like you can't see beyond it until you can. That sounds about right. No, it's... Event horizon is some space. There's another one that people use now for like, you can't see the political possibility until it's there and then it's Uh there. But I think that can happen pretty soon. Does it mean we'll do the 75% reductions by 2030, which Greta 
would correctly argue is what we should be trying to hit if we're going to try and hit a one and a half degree world and, you know, nearly a hundred percent reductions by 2040, probably not. And there'll be some countries that are real laggards like Russia and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela for all sorts of reasons. But I, I think the worst case scenarios are off the table and we're going to see ratcheting levels of ambition. And COP26 won't be the last COP, unfortunately. The fact that it's number 26 should hint to you that. So every single year, the ambitions will get more ambitious. And in every country in the world, politicians are driven by polls now. They're not leaders, right? They are like, what can we squeeze through that's politically... Rather than lead people to the answer, we're going to try and negotiate what they roughly will tolerate anyway. But the people are going to demand more every year and the politicians get more ambitious every year and COP27 and COP28 will be better. But, you know, we won't get great as well, but we won't get the worst case. Uh, I feel somewhat happy about that. I don't, I <laughs> it's interesting, you know, I remember talking with Dr. Carl about this a couple of years ago and we, we were positing this like we're human beings. We wait for the heart attack to change our diet. Yes. We're just starting to choke on the chicken chaslick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope let's hope it doesn't get that bad. I mean, weekly tornadoes in Queensland is pretty grim. That all of those things are pretty grim. And there's reason to believe that the climate scientists are, just, are still underestimating and we're already over the, the break-even points. Right? If you wanted to go dark, I could tell you that we actually still don't really know how to model clouds when you're building the global climate model. And very small changes in how you model clouds might mean that we're really already way over the tolerable levels. But, you know, that's only a low prob- very low probability outcome. As you mentioned, we don't, know, we don't know what we don't know and we can't see it until we're there. Yeah. You've been uh, thinking about, we're around the same age. When did you start thinking about this sort of stuff? Were you as a teenager when you sort of first started to kind of get a, get a grasp on this or was it later on? Uh, I was a teenager. The first time I got arrested for this stuff, I was 23, 22 right. or 23. And what yeah. were you getting arrested for? Shutting down the Harbour Bridge with 5,000 of my ratbag cyclist friends on a Friday night. <laughs> and I had the pleasure, my sister was an early adopter of everything. She had a cell phone. She lent me her cell phone. So because I was the one ratbag whose sister had a cell phone, I was the guy who called into Alan Jones talk about this because you know you're trying to develop PR and build awareness and you can pretty much imagine Alan Jones talking to me in 1997 about climate change with my 5,000 friends uh, a complete traffic snarl you know dividing both sides of the harbor so he did what was unconscionable and called the police and gave them my number which is actually I don't think that's in the media code of ethics and so there was a policeman waiting for me on the other side Senior Sergeant Dave Darcy, I can even remember his name. He was a fabulous guy. He ended up becoming an ally for building more bicycle paths in Sydney. They, wow. Yep. They, I remember that protest because I remember meeting, I'd only moved to Sydney about a year and a half afterwards and I remember one of our tech guys was in that cycling group. I believe it was called Critical Mass. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And um, they kept the, the dream alive and they rode through the city every Friday night. Yeah. It's a shame we don't have more civil disobedience like that right now. We really need it. Uh, yeah, it uh, gets a bit heavy, as you may have noticed in uh, recent times in Australia. It can get a bit heavy, uh, can get a bit violent <laughs> to, to, to say or do anything about it in recent times. But so it was what drove you to that? I mean, you, you were driven to go, look, I might get arrested for this, but there must have been something inside you that went. Well, I was, I was already an engineer and a scientist and I had read enough of the climate science to satisfy myself that this was the issue. But, you know, I mean, I think this is the reason for optimism. In 1997, if you thought climate change was an existential crisis, you had to demand of everyone that they stop driving their cars and ride bicycles because we didn't have the idea that an electric vehicle, electric cars could replace all of our cars. And you had to argue that people had to turn off the natural gas in their house and wear sweaters. But in the 
24 years since then, all of the engineers and scientists have done a pretty damn good job of making all of the things required to solve about 90% of this problem. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. And I guess that's the... That's the, that's the optimism. We are now there and it, the economics are flipping in favor of the solutions and the the sheer scale of the solution is so large that we're going to halve the cost of all of the critical technologies that get you over the line at least one or two more times. Because when you make things at industrial scale, every time you double the number of widgets you make, the price goes down by 20 or 30 or 40%. That's known as the learning curve. And we've got to double battery production three or four more times. We've got to double solar production three or four more times. Both of those are on learning curves with a 20% cost reduction every time. So this, all of the things we need just by virtue of doing the project at the global scale required to address the problem guarantees that the cost of the solutions will be affordable to everyone. How does it make you feel that as someone who, you know, you're essentially putting your academic career on the line when you are risking getting arrested for a very public display of disobedience and then being very public with your name and, you know, the faculty knows who you are and you're on the radio with Alan Jones and such and such. How does it make you feel knowing that, you know, this is now something that is on the minds of everyday people? It's the number one issue in the electorate that I sit in right now. I sit in the electorate of Wentworth, which is the eastern part of of Sydney. But yeah, someone walked past my house this morning and says, good on you for, you know, tweeting at your member. I'm like, yeah, because it's, it's the number one thing in our electorate. It's the number one effort. So this kind of fringe, weird bicycle thing with people blowing whistles, I remember those critical mass guys, to now it's just lovely middle-class suburban mums driving white SUVs going, this is really important. How does it make you feel? Uh, I am encouraged, you know. You could feel smug, but I think that's the wrong thing to feel because you know that we're two decades behind schedule. As my mother said to me recently, she's like, you know why I think we're going to be okay? It's because the middle-class mums and the middle-class dads are going to solve this problem. They now have all of their skin in the game and they're starting to see it. And there is no force like the International Mothers Network when they, <laughs> when they fear that their babies are threatened. So I actually feel we're on the cusp of success when this is penetrated to be the talk at school drop-off and pick-up. Which is what exactly what has happened this morning. And I didn't become an academic, thank God. I run a bunch of startups and I run a company that builds startups. So we hire a lot of people and I'm getting five resumes a day from 40-something professionals who've got stellar careers and enormous paychecks at Google or Facebook or Apple or this or that or the other. And they're like, we want to give it all up and come and work for you in a crazy high-risk, low-paying startup that's working on climate solutions. So I see the same phenomenon happening professionally now where there is a desire to be part of the solution, not a desire to ignore it or be part of the problem. I remember seeing once a senator from Florida being questioned about, well, how do you feel about your state and the threat of rising sea levels? And they gave a percentage of the landmass he was going to lose and such and such. And he just waved the question away going, I don't know, the economics will work it out. The economics will work the situation out. Don't worry about it. And at the time I was like, that's reprehensible. What a reprehensible way to wait until it's cheap enough and it makes sense for money but fuck me, Saul, if that's not what's happening. It is what's happening. And this is why, you know, you could be cynical and you say this is why Republicans are religious because it requires the same blind belief in, a, in something that comes true no matter what you do, right? You'll never know whether there is a God and the invisible hand will always prove to be right, right? It's just absolute faith. So we, we could have accelerated the the time by which we got to the invisible hand being right, which yeah. we did a little bit. You know, we invested in solar starting in the 70s and wind and those things and those investments from governments helped us make these technologies affordable. But, you know, the free market here will ignore all those investments in all of that science over all of those years and just say, well, though no, the market achieved it. The free market achieved it. And, you know, I just did a modeling exercise for the Australian economy that shows that the free market in 2024 will basically 
make the recipe for decarbonizing every household cost-effective. In America, it will take a little bit longer. That's probably why Fox Murdoch Media decided to have their (laughs) coming of climate age in Australia before they're going to go and test that messaging in America. But you, it is not insane to imagine, you know, very likely the next election in Australia will be fought largely around climate issues. And it's coming up. Oh, I guarantee it. That's it's next yeah. year. It's in March. And then you you could actually imagine it's except you know Donald Trump really does. He's a reality distortion field all to himself. But you could imagine a fiscally conservative Republican running in twenty twenty four in the United States on the economics of solving climate change because we're that close. We're that close to the future, right? We're just oh, it's just such a shame that it's not a slam dunk right now. And unfortunately yeah. for Europeans, there you know happens in Australia in twenty twenty four, happens in America in about twenty twenty seven, and happens in Europe in about twenty thirty. So those poor bastards. In the book, you talk about, and this is the last couple of weeks, we've had nothing but Barnaby Joyce and Canavan and the Nationals talking all about jobs and coal and coal and jobs. And for the for the most part, a lot of, and you mentioned cops in, in your mind don't really carry much weight. From, as far as I'm concerned, we could do all we want. We could dig up all the coal we like, but eventually people aren't going to want it. And Australia's responsibility now is to retool and reshape and be ready for a world that doesn't want coal. And it appears to me, Saul, this huge possibility and opportunity in front of us right now if we pull the right strings and make the right moves. And I know that one of the things you talked about just before- I think what you're trying to say is the people who have the current subsidy don't want a different subsidy to change the playing field. (laughs) That's what I heard you say. (laughs) Do you think that's what it is? I mean, I think that's a very natural reaction. Yeah, but like, you know, we subsidize coal and we don't subsidize the thing that could beat it if there were no subsidies. Yeah. Coal is falling off a cliff in the US no matter as hard as Trump tried. Like, coal's just dying everywhere. The economics of coal are awful. Australia will be able to hang on a little bit longer because we have nice coal. But China's done its math. It's, it doesn't really see any risk in cancelling Australia's coal imports anymore because it knows it has enough domestic coal of its own to get it through the transition. So coal's dead. Oil's dead. The remaining fight is over natural gas. Let's be honest. Yeah. And it's a toxic, horrible thing that's yeah. poisonous to your children that we let get into your home and leak everywhere. Yeah, we just got an electric oven put in to get rid of our gas one and already life is is way better. Part of what you talked about earlier, and I'm fascinated because you do touch on this in the book, you talked about Australia's solar uptake and every time there's a conversation about solar panels in Australia, there's always talk from a regulatory body or a power company going, but you don't understand the grid destabilisation, such and such and such, and we need to be able to turn your solar panels off and such and such like this. What are the organisational structures around the power companies and how they relate to the average punter, how do they need to change as we as we move forward? What needs to happen to our grid and the transmission lines in our grid? I think this is in the top three hard things to fix bucket. And every country in the world has a different version of this pathology. In the US, the 20th century deal with the devil was to give the utilities a monopoly in exchange for reliability of service. Australia had a little bit of that, but it's even worse in Australia because the government owns a lot of the the utility providers and it owns the distribution networks. And it also has, you know, it makes the Australian government gets revenue from selling coal to itself. And then by very design and by paranoia, because if you run an electricity company, no one really gives a damn about you until the one time in a year you have a blackout and then they hate your guts. So they've had 50 years of being smacked over the wrist for the tiniest errors. And so they never, they don't want to have any errors anymore. So there's this unbelievable fear from them. And remember that these companies are a few executives who are basically financiers and a bunch of engineers and engineers are nervous as hell about failure. So they don't want to fail. And so you've got a system that isn't designed to take any risk that needs to change. Change is horribly scary for them. And they are very, very good at thinking about what they have to lose. And they're very, very bad about thinking what they have about what they have to win. So the reality is 
we don't have a technology to keep our cars and have zero emissions unless we go to electricity. And you might say, oh, what about hydrogen? I'm like, hydrogen is just electricity with a worse battery. So you, we've got to electrify the cars. And then we've got to electrify, like you just did, your stove and the heating systems in your home. That's going to double to triple the amount of electricity that needs to be generated and delivered. So I don't really understand why these these companies are working from a position of fear that they're going to lose revenues, et cetera, et cetera. But we, they're going to actually triple them or double them. So that that's there to win. And you know, they also come from this design system where we have giant centralized facilities that push energy one way to you. But there's no real way of looking at the future where you can't the, the only way we're going to balance these systems is having the batteries in people's cars in their houses, their heating systems and their solar cells all participating. So we are in the awkward moment in history where the past can't see the future in their in their last few death throes. But I think, you know, a few brave individuals have shown that it can work on one house and we're a couple of years away from running a pilot where we show a whole suburb can actually survive and not break the grid. But we've just got to get to those proof points. I'm actually super excited about Australia and we're trying to actually be the world's first pilot. Like, you know, I think because the economics are best in Australia... Wouldn't it be amazing if one suburb in Australia that's got about a thousand homes in it, which is what is roughly the number of homes that are under a substation, which is a unit of the distribution grid that is kind of important. Wouldn't it be amazing if the Australia could be the world's first suburb that switches off all the natural gas in its area, goes all in on electric and proves to the world that you can balance the grid and it won't crash and it'll actually be more resilient because it turns out you know, the average Australian household is 1.7 cars. And if you've got 1.7 electric cars, you've got enough electricity in their batteries to go off the grid for about 10 days. And you'll also have another battery on the side of the house unless you go another couple of days off the grid. And then you turns out you don't need that many days off the grid because you've got solar on your roof, which solves for most of it. Like we're going to find out that this was not really an enormous problem. But we are just in the difficult position right now where it goes up against essentially an 80-year, very, very reliable, conservative, engineered the old-fashioned way history. So we're in a bit of a spot. Nokia sat around going, this is going to be awesome. They're selling 115 million handsets a year in 2006, and the party's never going to end. And then in 2007, Apple take out the iPhone, and then because of this new touchscreen little device, something like podcasting shows up, economics as we know it changes, communication changes, social media changes, the way we talk to each other changes. And then four or five years later, who the fuck wants to buy a Nokia share? Nobody. What's coming down the pipe that's the iPhone of electrifying everything? Uh, it's already here. You know, it's just batteries. So Australia has proven, you know, it is the magical combination of very, very, very cheap solar and cheap enough batteries that solar and batteries locally is cheaper than whatever you can put on the grid and the cost of the grid. And we're very, very close to that moment. So when we're hearing when we're hearing politicians stand up and go, look, uh, check, correct me if I'm wrong, but solar panels don't work at nighttime, is that the sound of someone who's just worried about their job? Is that someone just denying reality? It's the sound of a person who probably hasn't had the luxury of the good experience of the future yet. Right. You're so compassionate. I love you. <laughs> I, could get, I get quite cranky at this sort of thing. I actually think that we need more empathy right now than, than yeah. criticism. You're right, like, mate. My first job was in a blast furnace, so I know what Australian coal and steel industry looks like. My second job was in aluminum smelter, and I spent my childhood cutting the balls off sheep on a farm that my dad's friend owned. So I actually even can find some compassion for the the coal people and the Barnaby Choice. Like life in the regions isn't easy in Australia. Honestly, we pay so little for our, our food and our vegetables and our meat that we should be giving the farmers subsidies. Yeah. So, you know, whether we have to dress that subsidy up as a carbon subsidy or whatever, like, I don't know. I don't think that's unreasonable. We have a lot of people who live in the cities who kind of are living off the fat of that land. 
So I think you need to have empathy for those people's experience. I think we need to do better storytelling. I think this is less of a problem in Australia today, but five years ago, everyone heard, oh, we've got to stop burning coal and they thought the job would shut down tomorrow and then the family would go bankrupt. What it really means now is whoever is currently working for a natural gas company or a coal company, they just got to make sure that they train their daughter to work in wind energy or solar energy or batteries. It's like the wind down of the fossil fuel system will still take 20 years, which is still roughly the working life of anyone who's been trained to do it. And we just got to wind up the other. But we didn't communicate it that way and we played into the culture wars and we let it sound like it was, you know, it was all over tomorrow and then your town's a dust bowl. And I think the other empathy we need to have is it does, the solutions do feel like they're virtue signaling and smug. Still seems to me like everyone who gets out of a Tesla is wearing spandex and, and obviously has a personal trainer. And like that's a little bit out of the vision of a lot of the country still. I think the transformative moment of the Ford F-150 becoming electric in the US is going to change absolutely everything. This is the most produced vehicle in world history. 50 million of them have been built and half of them are still on the road. It's a big truck. It's like if you took the Ford Ranger, which is, I think, ubiquitous in Australia now, it's like a Ford Ranger, but blowing up 20% larger in every dimension. And it's electric and it's going to go five or six, 700 kilometers on a charge. And it goes from zero to 100 in about four and a half seconds. Yeah. And I think once people see, oh, okay, I see it now, right? I think we underappreciate how tangible things need to be before people can believe it. Part of what you write about in your book is, it's a really simple, it's a two-word plan, electrify everything. Just electrify everything. And when you have to replace the thing that you need to replace anyway, like we did, take the gas stove to recycling, which is what we did, and then get the electric stove in. You, I know you have uh, like sort of Vespa scooter situations and you've electrified these. Do you see that as a pathway rather than people buying new EVs? Do you, do you feel that there's a business model there in uh, retrofitting and electrifying uh, existing vehicles? Because the brakes are all still good. Everything is AC still good. Tires are still good. I think only the sheet metal that deserves to live should live. So, you know, I actually have a few friends who are already making good businesses, converting classic vintage cars into electric. My wife is a saint. I own five cars. Their collective age is 260 years old. Right. I think the youngest one is 48. The first one to be electrified will be electrified at the end of next week. So sick. I'm, I'm real happy to hear that. <laughs> That's just because I, you know, I grew up watching, you know, the Italian job with my dad and, you know, I still remember watching Bathurst and I remember my dad took me to see the Grand Prix in Adelaide and I was taking a piss and Dick Johnson is in the stall next to me taking a pee at Adelaide Grand Prix. Like, you know, this, I was a 13 year old. This is like huge. And what do you, you know, you're at the urinal. What do you say? G'day, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I don't know. I'm sympathetic to the beautiful old things, but I don't, I don't think electrifying huge swaths of vintage cars is a better idea than replacing them. Your 1999 Hyundai XL, no. Uh, I haven't met a Toyota Camry that I'd you know, <laughs> re- retrofit yet. Um, what do you talk about? Let's put it that way. You said you worked in a, a smelter. Is that what you said? You worked in like... The Kamalco Recycling Smelter in Western Sydney. Right. So that's some... Big, heavy industry and and people might argue that, like, how are you ever going to do that sort of thing without thermal coal, without stuff like that? Where do we stand as a country, Australia? Where do we stand as far as our possibility to manufacture things like that and, and manufacture steel and stuff like that, but do it in a way without fossil fuels? How far away do you think that is? Uh, well, aluminum is already all electric, right? So the carbon dioxide emissions that come from aluminum are burning the carbon electrode in the production process. So there are processes right now that can do that without creating those carbon emissions. So we have a pathway to electric aluminum. It's just using wind and solar to do it instead of coal. Steel is a little bit harder. A lot of steel making is electric, 
but the piece where you turn the iron into steel in the blast furnace, we use coking coal now because that's the reduction engine that gets rid of the oxygen. Hydrogen can be used for that. So that's what the people who say it's green steel with hydrogen, that's what they mean. But then a professor of mine at MIT created a company called Boston Metals and they just use traditional electrochemistry. That means you put electricity into a solution and then you do chemistry and solution. And that's been shown to be a pathway to make steel and other metals without any natural gas or any coal. So these things are all possible. And in fact, this is where the regional debate, you know, Barnaby Joyce, listen closely. I've got the microphone. I'm going to make you feel okay about yourself. One half of the cost of steel is energy. Turns out which country in the world is going to have the cheapest wind and the cheapest solar in the future because it is, in fact, the luckiest country in the world, and that's going to be Australia. What do we have a shit ton of? Iron ore. What do you make out of iron ore? You make steel. So if we can use the cheapest energy in the world to turn our iron ore into steel, we will make the cheapest steel in the world. And honestly, what does the world need to make wind turbines, to make all of our solar cells, to make this electrified future happen? They need lithium, they need copper, they need iron, they need aluminium. And these are the things that Australia does in space. And because they're all high energy intensive primary processing metal industries, we will be able to win that game hands down against every other country in the world. The problem with the Australian climate debate is for 20 or 30 years, the politicians cynically were exploiting the fact that they wanted a whole economy solution because they couldn't dare go out and say, well, we, we, ha- we can do this little bit now, but this other bit we have to do later. And so that's why we always had an incapacitating climate debate saying, oh, but what about steel? But what about our exports of coal? What about our exports of LNG? The reality is if we just thought about what can we do today and what is about five to 10 years away from working really well for us, then Australia looks like it it comes out beautifully in solving climate change. Basically, right away, we can decarbonize our residential domestic economies, homes, small businesses. We electrify the vehicles, we electrify the homes, electrify the heating, electrify the water heat, electrify the kitchen solar cells on the roof, bunch of batteries to back it up, figure out the last little bit of the voltage management and resiliency problems for the distribution grids, sell that technology to the world. All of a sudden, you're in 2030, you've already reduced our emissions by 40 or 50%, and then we will have the clean steel and the clean aluminum turned on and we'll be able to basically make wind turbines for the rest of the world to help them on their decarbonization journey and we'll make a fucking shit ton of money doing it. But you know, that, what was it, a, like a 35-second run-on sentence? We've never had a politician that could actually stand up and say that without mumbling. But none of what you're saying is a fairy story. A lot of what I heard a Prime Minister say the other day was relying on yet-to-be-invented technology. None of what you're saying is relying on something that, well, a little bit you said, we'll figure that out, but that's only a small, small, small part of it. None of what you're saying relied on yet-to-be-invented technology. No. So what are the yet-to-be-invented technologies that we're relying on? We're relying on hydrogen and carbon sequestration, okay? So a little bit of little bit of history lesson. So there was this company called Germany. They tried to beat the whole world in war, but they didn't have any domestic oil, which is why they tried to take Africa, because they needed oil. There was another country called Japan in World War II that also tried to declare war on the world, but they didn't have any domestic oil. And so both of those countries were trying to turn their coal, because they had a lot of coal, into something that looked like a high-density liquid fuel. And so they started on gasification, and they were looking to try and turn it into a thing, and that got them very interested in the idea of hydrogen. So a national security issue for two of the big losers in World War II was, well, we need our own high-density fuel and it should probably look something like hydrogen. So that's why the German automakers and the Japanese automakers have been selling the hydrogen story for cars forever and why they were blindsided by the rest of the world doing it with electrons instead. But they've been selling that story because... Hydrogen solves another national security problem because if you don't think you can make enough renewables in your own country, a lot of people are worried that if they only had one cable, 
like this uh, Sun Cable project. Singapore wants to get its electricity from or Australia wants to sell electricity by big cable to Singapore. But Singapore will be like, well, what happens if someone cuts that cable, right? You have a whole national blackout for as many days as it takes to find a cable. I think they're doing a good job on making sure that cable won't get cut and it's got redundancy, et cetera. But this was the argument for hydrogen. Well, instead of having one cable to my country, I can have 20 other countries supplying hydrogen to me. And if one country doesn't, I can get the hydrogen from somewhere else. So we've had this long conversation. And because the, the trading partners of Australia have said they wanted hydrogen, we're like, well, we'll make you hydrogen. But there's a lot of problems with hydrogen. So I actually built hydrogen tanks for the Department of Energy in the US, I actually sold that technology to a coalition of auto companies that included Toyota and Porsche and Audi. So I like to think I know a bit about hydrogen. I've actually shot giant bullets into hydrogen tanks to watch them explode. Super fucking fun. Very scary. Owning a hydrogen vehicle, very, very, very scary. Like the third time it kills you, you burn to death. The second time it kills you, uh, you suffocate because there's no oxygen there. And the first time it kills you, it's the pressure wave from the, the energy released when the tank explodes. But we're still selling this idea that we're going to put that hydrogen in everyone's homes in some mix here or there. But there's anyway, this is to say hydrogen rhymes with natural gas to the existing fossil fuel industry, and it rhymes with national independence to a few countries. And so we've got these countries and a couple of big natural gas lobbies saying... Let's do hydrogen. So the whole world's addicted to this idea of hydrogen. But we'll use some. It's just not going to be a lot. But Australia has bought heavily into the hydrogen for everything conversation. The other conversation we bought into was carbon sequestration because the only way to burn coal conceivably while also meeting your climate targets is to capture those emissions and then bury those emissions. But the problem is that solar and wind power is already cheaper than coal and natural gas. Anything you do to capture those things and put them back in the ground is going to make that technology yet more expensive, meaning yet less competitive with wind and solar. The other problem is, turns out, when you take the fossil fuel out of the ground, it's just a whole bunch of carbons and a couple of hydrogens on, on a hydrocarbon chain and you mix it with oxygen. But when you mix it with oxygen, you make it four times bigger as a molecule, but about 5,000 times bigger because it comes a gas. So then you have to capture that gas, compress that gas. That takes a huge amount of energy. By some estimates, if we were to be sequestering the amount of carbon dioxide that the IPCC has modeled in 10 gigatons a year, we'd be using 15% of the world's electricity to compress the carbon dioxide, which will be hugely expensive. And, you know, you can't stuff it back in the holes it came out of because it's four times bigger even after you've compressed it. Right. So we've, we've bought hook, line and sinker these two ideas because they allow us to keep doing the thing that we already know how to do. Right. But I think... A third grader, maybe a second class kid, could figure out that these are pretty bad ideas. They're going to be more expensive than the alternative. And really, the title of the book, Electrify, was just to be like, come on, dumbasses, can we just agree that it's simpler than we think? It's about electrification. And then let's just get on with the job and do it. Thank you very much for talking about hydrogen vehicles. I've heard that hydrogen can be a little bit of a trick. Hydrogen has 123 megajoules per kilogram, which is what the hydrogen nerds really love to tell you. Yeah. Diesel has about 46 megajoules per kilogram. That means that hydrogen has two and a half times more energy per kilogram than diesel, mate. Imagine a truck running on that. Yeah. But what they don't tell you is that you need about 12 kilograms of tank for every one kilogram of hydrogen because you've got to compress it at such high pressure that you need this giant thick carbon fiber tank to hold it in. And so if you divide 123 by 12, it's about 10 megajoules a kilogram, which is barely better than a lithium battery. This is why I love numbers and I love speaking with engineers because they go, and that's a fact, moving on. I love it. I love it. So I love it. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Barnaby. Just taking a moment away from Saul Griffith, the innovator, the entrepreneur, the founder, the chief scientist of Other Lab and Rewiring America, the author of Electrify, an optimist's playbook for a clean energy future. He's a fascinating cat. More with Saul in just a moment, but 
I might have to play an ad here. And if I have to play an ad, sorry, but thanks. You're helping us, helping me pay Andy and Rachel and Brie. All right, let's see what happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You, you mentioned before in your beautiful 35-second run-on sentence, you, you talked about just replace this, replace that, replace this. And this is all well and good, and I can understand that because I'm in an economic situation where when it comes to getting a new motorbike, I can get an electric one. When it comes to getting a new car, I can get an electric one. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in our country, so who do not have that option. Thousands of people who they're still driving their 2005 car around because that's the only one they've got. How do we help the parts of our community that, rely on old vehicles that they can't afford to replace, a stove that might be gas, but they just can't find, you know, our new stove was 1500 bucks. It was the cheapest one on the, on the website. 1500 bucks is impossible for many, 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 many households in, in, our, in our country. How do we get people who just cannot make that leap? How do we help them make this transition? I actually think this is the most beautiful question that can be asked. And the answer is going to get a bit gnarly. But I think this is the hardest and the most important problem in finding our climate solution. By definition, roughly, you can't half solve climate change. So we're screwed if only the richest 50% of people can fix it. The other thing that's roughly, roughly half of people in a given society pay net positive tax. Roughly the other half get a little bit of a handout from the top half's taxes and they get a bit of help, which sort of means that roughly half of the people don't have a lot of cash to go out and, like you said, buy their electric motorcycle, the electric car, the electric stove. So the uncomfortable way of saying this in America where you'd, you know, immediately you'd get all of the libertarians up in shackles is like solving climate change necessitates solving some of the inequities in the, in the world and you can't have a solution unless you have redistribution of wealth. I think that statement is true, but you know those neocons that you mentioned at the top of the show who only want to believe in the free market really don't like this idea. So I think that's the gnarly piece of this question. There's going to be this is going to be very politically unpalatable to a whole lot of people to really absorb. I think however Australia is in a better position than America because we still believe in things like public health care and we still believe in things like public schools. You know, we've undermined them consistently for the last 25 years. We haven't actually euthanized them and taken them out behind the shed and shot them, which is what America did. So I have hope that we can do it. The point that really should be made is the lowest income houses have the most to win if we can help them afford the solution. Because if you're in the wealthiest 20% of homes in Australia, the cost of all of your petrol, diesel, electricity, and natural gas is about 4 or 5% of your household spending. If you're in the poorest 20% of households in Australia, it's 10 to 20% of your household spending. The amount of money that could be saved per year, because basically all households use roughly the same amount of, of all of these things. It's about, in Australia, average is about $5,000 a year for all of your petrol, all of your diesel, all of electricity, all your gas. There's about $5,000 a year to be saved by those low-income households in the total cost of ownership of electric vehicles and all of their other things if we can help bridge them to that future. So you can probably figure out, you know, we have very proactive policies across Australian governments that tries to support 
the idea of home ownership, which is helping people afford things that they can't pay cash for. So that works for, I think it's 70 plus percent of Australians own their own home. It is going down because we have neoliberal policies, but you know, you can probably get to about 70% of homes if you just start to say, well, we, we declared the suburbs Australian infrastructure and we have tax codes and fiscal policies that support everyone trying to own their own home. Why don't we just include the things that we call that home, the electric vehicles, the solar cells, the heat pumps, the electric kitchen, and help people buy those too? So I think that will get you a long way there maybe 70 or 80% of the population. And then we need to figure out how to rebate, how to underwrite the rest. And I think it would be extremely arrogant for anyone to stand up here and say they had even half of the solutions to climate change, let alone the solutions to these sort of interesting, difficult socioeconomic and political questions as well. But like, I actually think, you know, hopefully you have some smart young whippersnappers in your audience who will actually wrestle with this problem and as they drive home and they go through a poorer suburb, they're like, oh, okay, how do I put solar cells on that roof when the total value of that house is $180,000? Like we need, we need to wrestle with this question and figure out how we're going to do it. And I thought it was extremely cynical when the Australian government announced an electric vehicle policy, which was they were going to buy it for fleet vehicles and then let Australians buy secondhand electric vehicles 10 years from now or something. The climate does not have enough time to wait for all of these things to become 20 years old to be cheap on the second hand. You know, so that if we wait until the bottom 50% of income households are buying all of this stuff on Gumtree, we're too late on climate. So part of the creative thinking that needs to happen is around the financing for middle and lower income households to bridge this gap. We know it's going to save them money, right, even after financing. So that $5,000 a year savings, it was like, that's what will happen when we have solar at a dollar a watt, batteries at $200 a kilowatt hour, and electric vehicles that cost a little bit less in the showroom than the petrol ones. That's possible with a 3 or 4% interest rate on the financing. So the question is really, are we going to extend that financing credit to everyone, or are we only going to let the richest 50% of homes access the financing to enable that. Well, as you mentioned, we can't half solve climate change. Yeah. We have to whole solve it. And much like this pandemic that we're all living in has exposed these gigantic fractures and gaps in our society and what we expect of certain parts of our society and what we accept as realities in our society. You know, maybe this metaphor is overextended a little, but I actually really think that COVID has a lot of similarities, except climate change is bigger and grimmer and worse. Oh, no, absolutely, Matt. I've been saying it on this show for ages. Like, this is the, yeah. this is the dry run. <laughs> I actually talk about, elect- you know, electrification is the vaccine for climate change. We now know the things you have to do. We've got to electrify your, you know, either we get the 23-year-old Saul Griffith version of the future where we all ride bicycles and wear hair shirts and are vegans, or we get the 2021 version of Saul Griffith's future where we all have electric vehicles, we have heat pumps for our space heat and water heat, we have solar cells on our roof, we have batteries in our basement, we have a bunch of wind being generated out there on the grid, and we power the Australian steel industry off solar. And to do that, we're going to have to finance our way there. But it's a, a screaming deal for Australia. I think we did the, you know, the mat, we did this households report. There's 10 million households in Australia. There'll be 11 million by 2030. If you electrified them all and you do it with the costs that we know are coming for batteries and cars and everything, we'd be saving 40 to $50 billion a year as a nation. So honestly, the government should be investing in the people in the households to do this because some people out there will still try to convince us this costs too much and it's going to cost us money and it's going to be horrible. But the reality is this is going to save us a shit ton. We're going to do great. So where, so you said $40 billion a year. Every household saving about four or $5,000 a year on the cost of their transportation and the cost of their energy times 10 million households or 11 million households. It's 40 or $50 billion a year. That's money that would otherwise go to energy companies but now goes into economy and other places? Yes, that, that money instead of going to energy companies to tear up the earth and pollute our waterways, that money would be going to butchers and bakers and LED makers. 
Hey, I, like I can't it. believe I pulled that off. I want to. I want to high five. I want to high five you right now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, forty billion dollars. There was I saw a calculation the other day that the current cost of lockdowns, quarantines, vaccinations, medication, hospitalizations, da, 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 since the COVID nineteen pandemic in Australia began, thirty four and a bit billion dollars. So that is enough money to deal with a pandemic every year. Wow. That's right. And for the price of one submarine, we can get there. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> Just one submarine. <laughs> I don't want all your submarines. Scotty, you can take a few of them home and you can sleep with them and you can rub your body up against the submarines. I just want one. And then with $12 billion, I will invest in the Australian households. And, you know, if we spend about $12 billion over the next five years, we'd be on our way to realizing those $40 billion a year in savings. Saul, don't don't ever change. Before I leave you, in the next couple of months, we're going to hear a lot of things come out of a lot of people's mouths as we lead up to the election. I'm ready to call bullshit on all of them. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> what do we listen for? What policies are we looking out for? What are we voting for? Let's go positive here. What are we voting for? We should be voting for anything that sounds like offshore wind. We should be voting for anything that sounds like, I think the fashionable term in Australia is renewable energy districts, which means a lot of solar and a lot of wind. We should be voting for policies that focuses on the domestic economy and the electrification of the domestic economy. We should give much more encouragement to electric vehicle policies than we should to uh, industrial hydrogen policies. Because one, you know, we'll get to hydrogen eventually if we need it, and we'll need a tiny bit, but not as much. But we need electric vehicles to start rolling out immediately at scale in Australia. We should shout down anyone who says carbon sequestration more than twice in an interview. <laughs> and we should be very, very cautious about anyone saying net zero. Net zero is really code for we're going to let the fossil fuel companies continue to burn and we're going to hope to bury all of their carbon under the sea, but it actually is beyond the physical limits of the world. So, you know, we should just be aiming for a zero, zero. We should be doing 50 to 75% reductions by 2030. That is good. That's commensurate with the one and a half degree world with a shred of the Great Barrier Reef still left that we would like. We should be asking for, you know, very close to zero by 2035 or 2040 in Australia because we have it easier than every other country in the world. I hate this now. Everyone's like, what's your theory of change? My theory of change last year was that Biden would get in and he'd be Franklin D. Roosevelt and he'd declare war on climate and we'd actually, you know, America would step up. But his Congress has prevented him from doing that. So the next best theory of change I have is that a country that is big enough and recognizable enough in its aspirational lifestyle to the rest of the world to show the world how to do it. And you know which country has the best shot at doing that? Australia. It's not quite Norway because no one will believe them because they've got all of those fjords, which means they've got free hydroelectricity. So it's too fucking easy for them. We're just hard enough. And we're also bigger. You know, Norway's like half the size of Sydney population wise. I think there's a genuine opportunity for Australia to lead the world and to do it early and to show the way. And I really... I really would like that to be what Scotty goes to Glasgow with. <laughs> I know he won't, but I can keep saying it. And I've said it on a bunch of podcasts and maybe the echo chamber will put a few of these words into his little mouth and he'll say, Australia feels privileged. We feel indebted to the world because we let you burn all of our coal and that didn't even count on our carbon budget. <laughs> and in exchange, because we were such a big contributor to the problem, we're going to be the biggest contributor to the solution. We're going to electrify our domestic economy by 2030, 50% reductions. We're going to do the whole economy by 2040 and we're going to give you the cheapest metal the world ever has to build all your windmills. And so Griffith, that is where I'll leave you. Thank you for being in the world and thank you for doing the work you're doing. And maybe one day, one day, we could at least ride a bicycle together. If not, an electric car. The electric motorbike will totally do me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Saul Griffith, PhD. What a guy. The book is called Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future. Get around it. Get on board. It's available wherever you get your books. 
He's also very much involved with rewiring America, which is a fascinating blueprint for what we could do here. I mean, you can hear, he's just basically talking about, fuck Australia, we have the chance. We have the chance to to lead the world in this. We have the chance to show the world that it can be done. And it does seem to me that there's a fair amount of economic upside doing so. Because as we're finding out, the news out of Glasgow right now is uh, not doing that and trying to tell people that fossil fuels is the way forward doesn't seem to be where the capital's flowing. So get around the book and get involved and see how uh, you can make sure your kids have jobs. The book is called Electrify, an optimist's playbook for our clean energy future. SaulGriffith.com to find out more about him or if you want to say g'day, tell him you heard him here on the show. Griffith Saul. Griffith Saul is where you can find him. Thank you so very much for being a part of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. If you'd like to help out, please just tell a friend. That's it. Tell someone. Say, you know what? That stuff happening in Glasgow. Yeah, I listened to this podcast the other day. I saw Griffith and G. Yeah, yeah. Check it out and send it to them. That'd be the best thing you'd ever do for me. All right, legends. Have a cracking day. Thanks for being a part of it. I'll be back here on Wednesday uh, with another quick interview. Until then, thanks Andy, thanks Rachel, thanks Bree, thanks Toehider, and I hope you sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.